Hi everyone, happy Wednesday. We've almost made it out of Mercury retrograde, so hold on a little bit longer. This is Christina Langell, your host, and you are listening to It's Always Saturn. Today's episode, we have poet Allison Lubar. They teach high school English by day and yoga by night. They are a queer, non-binary, mixed-race femme whose life work, aside from wordsmithing, has evolved into bringing mindfulness practices and sometimes even poetry to young people. Their debut chapbook, Philosophers Know Nothing About Love, is out now with 30 West. Their second, Sweet Euphemism, is forthcoming with Clash, an imprint of Mouthfeel Press, in 2023. You can find out more at http colon backslash backslash alisonlubar.com, that's A-L-I-S-O-N-L-U-B-A-R, or on Twitter at the original Allison. I really enjoyed this conversation. We covered a whole lot of ground, talked a lot about poetry, and a lot about life. There are some moments throughout the recording where things got a little computery, glitchy sounding. I guess we didn't have a perfect connection, so I apologize for that. Unfortunately, a small part towards the end of Allison's poem, Cosmology 33, gets a little bit wonky, so I apologize Bear with me. And you also noticed that at one point I had to add in the phrase Amanda Gorman so that it made sense. I hope you're all doing well out there and staying safe. I feel like things are a little bit tense right now. Uh, Thinking of everyone that we know in Florida as Hurricane Ian approaches, thinking about the world, the continued violence in Ukraine, and increased threats over there and just everyone out there I'm sure for you as it has been for me it's been a long few years and um, just sending out some love just a couple fun notes for right now I am going to be reading at elementary coffee this Friday at 7 p.m. in a show being put on by the Harrisburg Writers Group so I'm pretty excited about that. You'll also see Poet Laureate Rick Kearns who has been featured in Raven Rabbit Rams so I'm very excited to be a part of that group. Other fun stuff going on, Harrisburg has a vid jam happening right now so teams of filmmakers across the city and general area are spending the next few days, they get 13 days total, creating short films. In this case they are horror short films. My writing partner, Pat Kelly, and I are working on one that I look forward to presenting to the world. The viewing for those films will be Sunday, October 23rd at Midtown Cinema, so be sure to mark your calendars if you're looking for something fun to do that day. Allison also mentions the upcoming marathon of Mad Poets uh, readers. That sounds super cool, and I highly recommend you check that out if you have the opportunity to travel east or you already are east. We talk a lot about community in this podcast. I really look forward to creating more live events where we get to get together with lovers of poetry, art, all sorts of things in the Harrisburg area. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us. It's always Saturn. So Sunday Scaries, you're you're a teacher, yes? Yep. Yeah, but also just like, it's honestly like the worst part isn't necessarily thinking about going in to teach on Monday. It's like food prep for the week Mm. and like errands and those kinds of things. And I'm like, I really just want to like chill and do some poems and take a walk with a dog and spend time with my wife and, but I'm meal prepping. So you live in the Philadelphia area? Yeah. So we actually, we live outside the the city in uh, in New Jersey, but we call it East Philadelphia. So, <laughs> but <laughs> we spend like so much of our time in the city anyway. 
That's very cool. Is it storming there today? It's like thunderstorming here all day. It looks it looks a little ominous. Always potential for like a stormy Sunday or something, but yeah, not not yet at least. It was here, and I was just like, oh, this is cozy. I like. (laughs) And it takes down the pressure to get stuff done on a Sunday when it's just rainy. And so I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for joining. I thought it was really interesting as I read through your work. One totally uh, random note, but it's like a very minimal use of articles Mm. and I loved it (laughs) and I wondered if that was something basically in how you approach your poetry if you're really intentionally like cutting it down to the bare bones to like have the maximum impact per word or if it's sort of a channeled sort of style of writing that way Yeah, I think what I find with my writing is I'll write really voluminously. And then most of the actual, I feel like in many ways, the the work of revision is the focus of my work because I just have so many words in there. And sometimes if I can't think of the perfect one, I'll just do like a stream of ones that are similar and knowing that I'll go back and use the editing process in that way. I think I usually, that's a great observation that you made about articles. And I think that I usually, or in many cases, omit them because of the precision. I think I'm always working towards like precision with my word choice. And is this the exact thing that I want to say? Like, can I be more precise? Can it be more specific? Can I narrow this down? Can I make the idea of this any sharper? And I think that even with the use of an article, you can get some specificity, but then in a way you lose some of the impact but yeah that's a great great observation I think I was looking at your first two poems on there when I started thinking about it because then I started just doing like a tally and it was so few (laughs) by the time I read through all your poems I was like oh my god that's so cool this is really really solid editing I think revision is something that I mean a lot of people love to write but I think you can at least have that when you start talking about revision absolutely I'm going to pull up my website so I can look at it. <laughs> yeah, which definitely needs to be updated. My, the, my knowledge of coding is like slowly like slipping away. So I just keep putting it off. That was actually another question I have for you. Cause when I was reading your bio and it mentions that you're full stack, I, I was thinking about tech things and, and just where that yeah. came into your world. Right. So it came into my world in a couple of different ways. Um, I, I thought over the beginning of remote instruction and a couple of things that happened at, at work. And I was like, I'm, I'm out of education. I'm out. I'm out. I love it, but I can't, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I took a coding bootcamp class and we learned full stack, like front end, back end in terms of what I retain. I'm not sure <laughs> completely. <laughs> like I, I, I was able to build my site at the time. And I think some of that stems too from my, one of my undergrad majors was in philosophy. So loving logic and loving when things work kind of cleanly in that way. But then by nature, I'm more of like a, a messy person. I guess I'm more of like a cook than a baker. And it's interesting because I love the precision in, in words, but precision everywhere else seems almost too much to bear. So I think I need to be, or I'm giving myself the excuse of being a little bit messy and disorganized and imprecise in all other areas of my life, which doesn't work when you're trying to code, but uh, I tried, I tried. That's very cool. My husband's actually, he was a philosophy major and He's in IT and as that's 
what he loves about it is the logic and, mm-hmm. and turning it into logic problems, which is, I always liked the, the discussions in philosophy, but never got into the, the precision like that. Mm-hmm. So you majored in both philosophy and what was it? Literature? Yeah. Italian literature. literature. Yeah. Which yeah. is interesting. Cause I'm not, cause I'm not Italian. But I grew up in an area where a lot of my like neighborhood aunties were, they were Italian and just a lot of really strong culture where I was. And and my mom and I are mixed, are mixed Japanese and there was no one, there was hardly anyone like us. So I, of course, gravitated toward um, the people who became adopted family. So then a fascination with Italian language and culture and eventually like literature. And, and I ended up studying that in undergrad which is about as useful as a degree in philosophy. Uh, <laughs> but I think it just really brought me a lot of joy in understanding the human experience and human connection to language. Like if you think about how Dante essentially created vernacular Italian to immortalize someone who he loved. I mean, was he a creeper? Like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I just think of the idea of the word and and language and literature being something that outlasts has been a really comforting way to think about mortality I guess not to not to get into that right away but but yeah absolutely I love getting into mortality right away (laughs) (laughs) you teach English yes Mm -hmm. I taught college for about two years I taught English I always found that to be like a really big challenge because in my mind thinking about my like favorite moments in education were these things where you're like oh my god I'm making these connections to like the deepest questions in life and stuff but then as a teacher you can't just try to you know like dead poet society every day I think I think I'm realizing like I, I try to dead poet society like every day too. And it's, it's interesting. I, I really came back to writing and I, and I decided to stay in education after uh, the Atlanta spa shooting last year. And my students asked me to speak at a stop Asian hate rally. And it just kind of reinvigorated my, like what I felt was the reason why I was still in education and why I wanted to teach high school because like our student population is so diverse, is so mixed, is so varied and vibrant in that, but that's not always reflected in leadership and in people who have leadership roles in the community. So all like martyr complexes aside, that's what's kind of, that's what's really like kept me in the classroom and kept me in public school and kept me in high school because it's just the most important age where kids want to ask these questions And if you can help them find answers or even not even answers, but find the questions behind those, then I think that that's the real work of education is giving kids the tools to continue questioning and to get to the root of what truth is for them. Do you you find yourself in any way restricted by the curriculum that you are kind of expected to follow? And I guess not to make it too political, but I guess I'm thinking about in the yeah. context of things like, at least in Pennsylvania, we have a copycat, don't say gay bill on the books or mm-hmm. up for discussion, at least. Right. Things, things like this that really do threaten to restrict education. Right. I mean, when you think about what 
what I'm mandated to teach. One of the things is I that's in my curriculum and always has been is Macbeth. It's mandated by on many, many levels, but using Macbeth as a core text, that can be a vehicle through which to examine gender and toxic masculinity and toxic femininity and fate and free will and the idea of ambition and hope and tyranny. So I think any work of literature that's mandated in a curriculum really has, by virtue of its quote-unquote excellence or place in the canon, has within it so many different complexities and nuances that can be pulled out by a teacher to create a human-first curriculum around that piece. That's amazing. I have two kids, and I I have to say that hearing a teacher explain something like that makes me feel a lot better about sending them to public school because as a member of the LGBTQ community myself and like just knowing my kids and who they are things make me you know every day kind of question should I be sending them to public school (laughs) and is there even an alternative because you know it's obviously prohibitively expensive and a number of other things that are problematic about sending kids to private school that kind of diminishes the overall emphasis on and quality of public education too. I mean, I started my career in, like, I I started teaching through Teach for America, which is definitely like a polarizing institution, but that got me teaching English in West Philly for two years. And I think I, I, I just, I could not believe the quality of my own public education as juxtaposed to what so many students were experiencing. And I I had no idea how enormous the issue of educational equity was before I was involved with organization. And I'm still teaching. And that was, I'm starting year 16 as an educator, as like teaching public school, um, teaching high school and do other options for education. Are those what many students need. Yeah, but in an ideal world, and I think I have to be an idealist, education is public, it's free, it's equitable, it's accessible for everyone. So, oh, I didn't mean to get so political. Oh, we're just oh, talking no. about <laughs> No worries. I really appreciate what you said about Teach for America and the polarization of it, because I worked as an AmeriCorps VISTA after oh. undergrad in a middle school in South Central Los Angeles. And it was, I would imagine similar to Teach for America in terms of the overall goal and, and the, you know, inherent problems with it. Right. And having prior to that in, in college, I did a, what I would now look at and be like, oh, that's like voluntourism and probably really mm-hmm. terrible for the place that you went. But I, I went to Ghana. And it's interesting because it it shaped so much of my worldview and was well-intentioned. And and now I think I really am a more ethical person for having done it. But then, but looking back, it's like, oh God, (laughs) I see so many problems with it. And and these organizations, which are simultaneously well-intentioned and and problematic. Yeah. I mean, because the foundation of their existence, like they exist because of inequity. And if this, if the core problems like didn't exist, then there would be no need for them to, but then by virtue of their existence, it kind of points to like, Oh, this is a problem. And then it's like, it's like putting a bandaid on, um, on cancer Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways. So then what is, to what degree can we start getting to like the root of it to what, in what sense can we start changing 
changing things to, so there doesn't have to be something like AmeriCorps. So there doesn't have to be something like the Peace Corps. And again, going back to that idealism, I think I have to, you have to maintain some of that because it just becomes the grind and you don't realize you're, the whole goal is like to plant, what is it? To plant trees that you may never enjoy the shade of. I think that circles back to what you were saying with your students following the spa shooting when you were saying about there being so much diversity in the schools and and not as much leadership reflecting that. I think for myself, at least as a a cisgendered white woman, a lot of my my lesson is like, no matter how much you want to do something, like where can you just step back and look for other people to lead and look for like other voices to lift up and like just take a seat (laughs) is I think it seems to be a hopefully a overall lesson the world is learning right now absolutely Absolutely. and I at school I also last year became the advisor of our multicultural student union and we but our whole like goal is to be like how do we be better allies for each other so the student who feels the the greatest emotional weight or hurt or burden of something doesn't have to be the one also addressing it. So that that's part of the work that I feel that we're trying to do like school-wide. And I like, I teach a yoga elective. I started along with the vice principal, a um, restorative practices, alternative discipline program, where instead of like detention, kids will have meditation, yoga, and journaling as a replacement that, and that coincides with like yoga clubs. So sometimes the kids don't know who's there for what, like, are they there for detention or for yoga, yoga club? And I can say to a kid like, oh, like, I'll see you. Like, don't forget yoga on Saturday, rather than saying like, oh, don't forget you have detention. So just really trying to change like the, the culture of the school community in terms of making it focused on community and bringing everyone into that. Is yoga something you got into aside from teaching or as a vehicle to enhance your teaching? Um, it's, it's interesting. So I, I, I initially did yoga teacher training. I did like a kid's yoga training that was only like a week in the summer. And then from that, I kind of rolled into, I got my 200 hour RYT and I teach at a studio now too. And that's just been something that has been so important to my mental, emotional health, also like body health and kind of keeping everything together when everything else can seem kind of spinny. So I feel like my practice in that way and poetry are the two are two large ways that I find grounding and stability in my life, especially when trying to process things in the past or trying to process like a really tough day at work or or what's going on in the world. So I can be grounded enough to be, to do like what I need for my students and for, and for myself. Do you think that when you talk about poetry as a sort of grounding Mm -hmm. influence, would you describe your processes as a cathartic one primarily, or, you know, obviously there's a lot of different ways to approach things. Yeah. I think that, I think one thing that writing poetry can be is like absolutely cathartic and sometimes not even just like getting it out, but allowing, but like getting it out and then being able to examine it from different, a bunch of different lights. Like there's that poem, like 13 ways of looking at a a blackbird. And I, and I don't recall like who wrote that, but then there was kind of a parody or, or a complimentary poem of that, like 13 ways of looking at a tortilla, Mm -hmm. I think someone wrote, but just all the different ways that you can use that writing to process and understand 
your experience and get to the non-intellectual, non-solely intellectual and, and move away from sometimes the logic and get into the speculative, the metaphysical and, or whatever lies beneath consciousness and whatever kind of rises that you can like, it's like skimming, skimming the, the top of like stock and like, oh, I didn't know that that stuff was in there, but like, oh, here it is. So, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna get stormy. This is perfect. (laughs) That's a, a very cool image, the skimming the top of stock. I think it's interesting to consider from my perspective, I always keep thinking about the over-intellectualization of certain things mm-hmm. as it seems to take away from our empathy. Yeah. Like taking everything to that sort of material level and wanting to have a theoretical or philosophical debate about things that are very deeply personal and experiential and then at the same time, I find myself frustrated by a lack of intellectualism where it's like, we know this scientifically or whatever, and we're kind of disregarding it. I constantly feel myself really pulled between those two extremes of being like, you need to be more intellectual, you need to be less intellectual, which I appreciate about poetry, because I think people do look at it as a very outside of the writing community it's not something that people really engage with much or it's it's seen as very intellectual but then the actual experience of poetry I mean unless you sit there and do a homework assignment with it where you're really just going over and over to understand the meaning it is an experiential mm-hmm. thing it's very just visceral how, how did it come across the first time and then a series of unpacking if you keep reading and rereading to say that I appreciate that about your poetry is that it is an initial visceral you use a lot of texture and a lot of I mean texture is what really sticks out to me is the idea that I can almost like touch your poems I I love that about them but it's very sensory and then getting into further layers you can sort of eventually get to that how you might think about it intellectually thank you yeah (laughs) sorry that was a lot of words and not a question I'm sorry (laughs) that's great because I think like even kind of what I've been discovering is that this idea of intellectual quote-unquote as opposed to emotional it's not like all these things that have the appearance of being binary aren't it can be intellectual and emotive and sensual and also metaphysical and I I always uh I don't know how he has this grip on me but I always I feel like such a cliche with the with Whitman's like I contain multitudes like do I contradict myself very well I contradict myself um, then I am large, I contain multitudes. So this idea that it doesn't have to be an either or, it could be a yes and. And that's kind of the space that I've been approaching a lot of things in in my personal life in in terms of like my identity of being like like mixed race, non-binary, queer, sapphic, like however, like whatever descriptors or boxes. I felt like my whole life in many ways was like checking boxes. And that started like with race and being mixed. When I couldn't check more than one box, I was like, this isn't like, like, why not? So I think that removing that sense of, for me, a binary view of the world has been really liberating and has really just increased, not, I don't want to say increased in terms of like, oh, the more, the better, but as really broadened the types of joy that I can get from writing and from reading and from being in doing the poetry stuff. Do you think that that the non-binary sort of outlook creates the space for the idealism that you mentioned? 
Oh, ooh, that's great. Yeah. Um, I think absolutely. I think absolutely. And, and, and it definitely connects to like some of the yoga stuff, like my, my word in yoga teacher training was limitless. And it's one that I was like really resistant to because I wanted something like kind of phrase that was like really pretty. And the one of the people who was leading it was like, no, Allison, like you have to pick a singular word. And I'm like, mm, I don't like words are my thing. And I don't want you to tell me what word, but it, but it truly, it truly is. And I think just having, having all like perimeters, like porous, everything kind of unbound from its tethering really just increases that sense of possibility and joy and really like optimism too. Yeah. A lot of things could go wrong, but there are so many things that could be more amazing that I haven't even conceived of. So I think I have to be an optimist, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) When you talk about the porousness, that's one thing that I always struggled with as a writer thinking, I need to separate my writing because whatever I might say in my writing might be vulnerable or subversive, anything. And then I was like, oh, I have this corporate life or I have this academic life or these things that I feel like, oh, I could get in trouble <laughs> if my writing. And that's something I've really embraced. I don't know if it has to do with just getting older, but being like more like, fuck it. Like yeah. <laughs> I'm, one, I'm one person and that's who I am. Do you find that your sort of various tracks in life do you have a a cohesion in that regard? I think they definitely, they definitely do. And I think that I have, I had, it's taken a lot of time to establish good and clear boundaries at work and good and clear boundaries with, I think what I, what I share of aspect of my life, like at work, like my students know I'm queer, non-binary, they know I'm a poet, they know I'm mixed race, they know those things. And some of my AP kids, they'll ask like, oh, like, are we going to read some of your poems in class? And I'm like, mm, no, no. I mean, if they wanted to Google me, could they? Absolutely. Could they follow me on Twitter if they wanted? Yes. I legally like can't follow them back. And frankly, like that's my separation. That's my boundary. But I think that creating those has been the healthiest. Like my, does my wife want to read everything that I've written? Like probably not. Cause some of it's not about them, but if they wanted to, would I say like, no, you can't read. I'm like, read at your own risk, babe. Like, I love you and, and, and choose what, but, but they'll, but they, you know, respect that then. So it's, did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) That's one that I found as well in, in marriage. It's like, oh, well, this stuff's old. I, I, I think I overestimate how much other people who you, I think as, as years go by as a writer, you realize that your audience is probably more not the people that you know. <laughs> but you know, you have that sort of like, well, what if they read this? And it's like yep. nine times out of ten, nobody nobody cares. <laughs> no, they, they, buy, they buy your book because they love you, but they won't necessarily read it. And that's okay. That's mm-hmm. great. That's great. I sometimes would prefer them not to. Anyway, um I I I'd prefer to bear my soul in that way to complete strangers um, and have them connect with me over Twitter than <laughs> always do that with my, with my friends. So, yeah. Do you use Twitter a lot to engage with poetry? I think that it's been such a wonderful tool to connect with other writers, to connect with writers who have similar experiences that I do that are navigating a lot of similar spaces. It's been a great way to be aware of opportunities and events and support other writers. I'm, I'm, I've definitely, in the 
the last several years, I think made a shift to not to be like all yoga about everything, but like an abundance rather than like this scarcity mindset. Like there's room for all of us. Like there are so many lit mags. There's so many opportunities that it's not just like one person who is going to be like the ultimate poet forever. Mm-hmm. I think that we, it builds community when we share opportunities with, with the community. And then it becomes one of support and collaborative and not competitive, which I've, I've just, I think I've knock on wood been like pretty lucky in the Twitter universe to have found a good squad of of people who I've never met in real life that I connect with. And it's something like really casual in that sense, like, oh, like I'll buy their book or they'll talk about mine. Or if I post a poem, like they'll like retweet it or like I'll retweet like there is something recently that they had published, but it just feels like good and supportive and, and easy to do when I feel like my schedule is packed anyway. If I'm like, on the train, I can be on Twitter for like 10 minutes. Like, what are my, like, what are my people up to? How can I support them? What's going on? It feels really good and supportive in that way. That's really nice. I mean, we're working on with Raven Rabbit Ram is building community, something where I know it might be different depending on, you know, what your entrance into the poetry world is. I found that, you know, there's definitely a lot of gatekeeping in academic world of poetry but then there's you know the a million other poetry worlds that some are inviting and some aren't but one thing so I originally uh, found out about you through Mad Poets Society and I think they've done an amazing job of building this huge community of poets so how has your experience been with that and with the local sort of poet community oh just an absolute gift like so 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 lucky like Anthony Palma, who I'm I'm not sure like if the term is president or like what that is, but he has just been, um, and his, his wife, Brooke are just such like incredible people who love poetry, love the craft, love encouraging, like emerging poets, love building community and just saying like, Hey, like we all like love this medium. Let's spend time like building something together. So Mad Poet Society has just been an incredible source of joy and community and meeting people. They're having their big reading, which is, I think maybe it's a hundred, I'm not sure if it's a hundred poets, but it's essentially like a marathon reading in a couple Sundays. And I read there for the first time last year. And since then I've just met so many people in the Mad Poets like squad and they've all been just really wonderful. It's just been an incredible experience. They're building something really amazing. And then in a complimentary way, there's this whole poetry scene that's cropping up in New Jersey called the New Jersey Poetry Renaissance that's headed by Damian Rucci and um, Cord Moreski. And it's just been bringing poetry to bars, to coffee shops, to like all these open mics, like at least two or three readings a week with features and just like building people up and who are who are just have made this part of their life so I think that there's a lot of momentum in the contemporary poetry community and a lot of effort to take it out of the hands of purely academia and give it back to as many people as it can be because really like with writing there are so many so many ways that it can be enriching. One of those is of course to share, but then to have a personal writing practice can be something that really helps you bring yourself out of feeling ungrounded or like writing like 
angry teenage poetry. Like it's amazing. Yes. Like, like I hope like all the kids are writing in their marble composition books or in their notes app. And it's just then when we get into this sense of competition that it becomes hierarchical, which is kind of ugly. With Amanda Gorman, the fact that she was just so young, I I thought was really inspiring as, as a poet. And because like by, but just by very nature of her age, she couldn't have been like sort of in that funnel of keeping it in an ivory tower. And I think it exposed a lot of people who might've otherwise just not really paid a lot of attention to uh, the poetry. I mean, I I feel like formal state things can be like a a funeral or church or whatever, where you just kind of zone out when things get boring and come back in when there's something exciting. And I think, you know, poetry could easily be that at something like an inauguration, but I mean, she just kind of really just shown. And I've, I've seen similar experiences lately. We had a reading for pride here and someone came up to me and was like, Hey, I've never actually been to a poetry reading. I had no idea what to expect, but I just wanted to come out and support because it was pride. And so that was really cool because it was like, Oh, like the more we can kind of get poetry, we can just kind of like sneak it in with some other stuff (laughs) so that people are going to be watching anyway, then maybe people, you know, start to appreciate it as an accessible thing. Mm. I think the word you used is really important, like making it accessible and making it something that is part of like words and expression are part of being human and what a wonderful medium to have, to feel like you can use to express yourself and also to connect with others. So I think accessibility is, is like the, it's such a great word choice there. Do you have an audience when you're writing in mind? Hmm. Um, for some, some poems I do, like some, some poems I do, my, my only like currently published collection, which came out in May with 30 West, um, which is philosophers know nothing about love. A lot of the speaker is generally addressing the person who's involved with the rest of the poems, like is speaking directly to a singular you, but a lot of the writing that my that I've kind of pivoted towards, like now that I got that all that out of my system, <laughs> um, I've really been focusing on what I felt was the project that I knew I had to write before I knew how I was going to write it. I didn't know if I was going to write it as as fiction, as nonfiction, um, but it's writing about my family's experience during the Japanese internment. So once my writing kind of pivoted to that, I was writing for, I think in many ways, I don't know if this sounds cliche or not, but like my, in some ways, like the younger self who was looking for writing like that by someone who I could see myself in. And I think I'm also writing with those works with the audience in mind of someone who just had their only understanding of the internment was a paragraph in a history book that was published in the nineties, which is generally what a, a lot of people's experience is. But this was just a case of mass social injustice and incarceration. And it's something that I find just so frequently slips through the cracks in so many different ways. So once I started writing about that, I think I was writing for a larger and broader audience in some cases. Do you see that as a a way of sort of healing ancestral trauma to be able to write about it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
it's really been a way to, I feel like give a lot of words to the stories or the experiences that like my mother had and her father and her father's sister, who's my auntie, who just celebrated her 97th birthday, I think. Oh my goodness. Congratulations to her. She's amazing. Yeah. So some of it is exploring the complexities of generational trauma and what my parents, what particularly my mother has done to break that cycle and to fill in the, to, to really round out the narrative. It's not just a singular thing that happened, but there were so many nuances to it. And then like reverberations and repercussions throughout everyone else's life. You know, if, if I'm speaking fictionally from like the fictional, like family in this collection that I'm working on, but I'm actually going to have um, a sampling of that published as a chapbook under uh, by Mouthfield Press under their Clash imprint, which is all chapbooks. And then it's called Sweet Euphemism. And that's coming out in March, 2023. But that's a collection of poems that really just focuses on on my relationship with my auntie. And also the title comes from the idea of, in in a physical sense, like of the poison rice at the camps, like it was, it was laced with asbestos to prevent sticking. And the idea of turning intergenerational trauma and this harmful, harmful past into something that's mythology to make it palatable, to make it digestible, to make it something that can be processed and isn't going to kill you, even though it's still dangerous. It's really powerful image thinking about identity, the the necessity to to mm-hmm. process and digest some of our history as Americans is very is a it's a very imminent sort of need, but I guess that goes back to the sort of binary way that we see things because I, I don't think that this to say anything super unique about America. I think that the world right now is on a bit of a nationalistic bend. <laughs> but um our it seems like we have a really hard time embracing and being positive about identity as Americans and simultaneously admitting that there are problems and that there have been things that have happened that we need to really address and that's one thing that I wish was more obvious I wish we could just have a more nuanced discussion like because I do feel patriotic when I meet people and I'm like this is, country is full of really cool people but then there's, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of like the American identity seems to be owned in a camp where you're not supposed to criticize it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I thought right away of, and I, I was just pulling up the James Baldwin quote, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Because I think that a lot of times we see criticism or feedback as, the idea that someone or something has done something wrong, whether or not that is the case. But I think that there has to be a way of giving feedback without it becoming a personal attack or a personal affront. And there has to be a way that we can have conversations and hold that space for them to be difficult and still persist through them and acknowledge this is a difficult conversation and it's, it's the whole self involved. It's like, you can intellectualize it. You can also be like purely emotive about it, but you have to acknowledge like all of, all of these aspects and complexities for it to be, for it to be a conversation of depth. You really honed in on that central issue of the importance of discussion and criticism doesn't negate love. It doesn't negate 
it doesn't negate pride in some ways, but I think that there needs to be a fuller and more complete picture of what it means to be who we are individually in the United States at this time, and then what it means for us as any type of collective. Do you think that writing has helped you to take on that sort of perspective? Because I think about that, like with revision, and the, the extent that we always are just, you know, killing, killing our darlings, yep. as they say. <laughs> I, do you think that affects sort of your outlook in the world like that? I think that the attention to precision that I take to poetry is kind of the attention that I try to put on getting to the heart of an issue or not that things can always be reduced, but to kind of sort out what is essential to this conversation, what is not, and then what are all of the other things that are affected by it? Who are the people who are affected? And what is that effect? Is it is it something that is continuing to perpetuate institutional or state violence and and racism or is it something that that isn't um and these are like really big and really challenging conversations and i think that sometimes if we can start to sort out how we feel about something then we can start to get to the why about it and then connect with others in that sense as an educator is that something that you put a lot of emphasis on the the creative side of English and the reading side of English, I feel can be very, very far apart. Yeah. And hearing that you majored in or that you were studying Italian literature, to me, it's like, that's almost a little intimidating to approach. It's like you have to have, you don't have to have any particular answer to it, but you do have to examine it and, you know, say something thoughtful about it. Whereas creativity can be just like whatever came out of you. Again, that was another non-question, but. <laughs> but I, think, I think that you're really like, I think that there's definitely something to that because I think with, again, with the creative process, you're trying to get to, you're trying to get to that heart of, you're trying to get to a, a kind of truth in some ways, even if it's a truth that you're just refracting in a bunch of different lights. Um, but then I think when you're studying literature, I tell my students, it's that old English teacher adage, like, oh, anything you think the poem means is true, as long as there's evidence to support it. So as long as it's not, hmm, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite, as long as it's not contradicted by anything in the text, but even if it is contradicted, then what do you make of those nuances? What do you make of that contradiction? Why might that exist? Like, we can't ask Walt Whitman what he what he meant by I am large, I contain multitudes. But when you look at so many other the pieces of of that piece, um, you could make a definitely a clear argument as to what he meant. So I think it's finding evidence to support your your experience in that way. And the the challenging thing then, even with poetry analysis, is that it's some much of what you experience isn't just purely intellectual. Like I tell my kids, I love starting out a poetry unit or, or the year with, I'll give them a piece of writing and they'll take out pen, pencil, whatever. And I'll say like, I'm going to read it to you twice, just underline or circle, like what stands out to you, what you understand, like, you know, pointing at their heart and, and, and their head and then everything else. Like what is something that grabs you? They love this generally, you know, and like, like you don't have to explain why. You don't always have to explain why, because if something hits you like in your heart, like that's not something that you can always like have the logical words for. And that's okay. There are more ways of 
I think of that quote in Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And I think like you can always intellectualize things, but then there's also such a joy to be taken for enjoying things as they, as they are like walking out of the school building on the first day of summer. Could you describe that feeling? Yes. Do you have to, to enjoy it? No. No. And there's so much that might be in what someone wrote that they're not necessarily aware of until they give it a second read. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that most of the symbolism that I ever found in a lit class was super intentional and (laughs) carefully placed in there. (laughs) I mean, even the way that we started out with the, with the omission of a lot of articles, I'm like, oh, I guess I do do that. Huh. That's cool. Um, So is it, and that part of me that's, that's writing and just doing that is part of something that I, you know, hadn't thought about, but now I'm going forward. I'm going to be like, Hmm, do I really want to use the, the here, or is it a rose or the rose? I think that's something I noticed because a lot of my, um, a lot of the things that I proofread work-wise are ESL. So there's a different orientation to using articles or in in some language patterns, they don't. So they'll be missing a lot in a sentence. Whereas in poetry, like you just kind of have that leeway to do whatever you want. Absolutely. Looking at your poems, there's one, (laughs) I wrote some random notes. Leavened breath is one that I wrote because I just, yeah. I think that's a really beautiful pairing of words. <laughs> I love To the Bone. I mean, that was, I wanted to ask if but between To the Bone and then your gallery, mm. when I was thinking like, oh, I wonder if she studied a lot of visual art. You seem to write from the perspective of someone who has like a very strong sense of both anatomy and, and how anatomy oh. plays into art. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, before I was, I think before I made my return to writing, I was focused a lot on visual art and really enjoyed doing a lot of that. When I was a teenager, I I had entertained like pursuing fine arts, but then was like, let me do something practical like philosophy. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) But, but I actually originally went to undergrad for art conservation so art history plus chemistry and then making some like artistic choices in like the restoration of a piece, whether it's oil, like all of the, what, no matter what medium it was. And then I, I kind of realized like, oh, like chemistry is not really my jam. I can't, <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't, I don't think I'll make it, but I love this philosophy thing. But I, I, I was so lucky to grow up in a house that really um, put a lot of love into words, a lot of love into drawing and creativity period and whatever medium it emerged in. Um, so I feel incredibly lucky for that, that space and my parents' generosity of encouragement in whatever way I wanted to express myself with minimum sassiness and minimum attitude, you know, so. (laughs) Is that, it's some sort of string instrument behind you? Is it a guitar? Yeah. So that, that's an acoustic. So I play, I always say rhythm because I'm not like super great. Um, I play like rhythm. And guitar and acoustic I play bass um, in the teacher band at school actually so sometimes so the teacher band is a couple of us who play instruments and we'll play at like fall fest sometimes or we'll play it like as an opener for like the school talent show and it's it's just something fun I love bass it's just so it's it's something I, I feel like in my guts when I'm playing it in a really great way. I feel like there's too much pressure with guitar and people who are good at it are like really good. So I'm like, I can, I can keep rhythm um, and I can do a couple chords when I need to, but really like bass is like 
totally my jam. Like, I love it. I'm not great at it, but it doesn't matter. I love bass. I once saw when I was in high school, my friend was a bass player and his strap broke in the middle of a show. So he like went down onto his knees because his strap broke. And it was like the most attention I've ever seen a bass player. Everybody thought it was like a really cool move that he did. (laughs) But it was like, oh, we're putting bass front and center right now. (laughs) And later he was like, that was the most terrifying moment of my life. I I. I don't want the attention on me. That's why I play bass. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm going to try that next time. You're like, yeah. oh, my strap broke. I have to sit front and center. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think about just, I do, I do improv with a lot of, well, a wide variety of people, but a few of the people who I do improv with pretty frequently are teachers. And having been a teacher, it's just teachers contain multitudes and it's it's cool to think about as an adult you're like oh yeah I had no idea how cool like oh here like they're making music they're poets they're doing all these things in their real lives that props to you (laughs) I actually had a so we just started the school year I had a student come up to me at the end of one class and they were like so what do you do aside from teaching like what like what do you do like what are you trying to like see if I was like cool or not. Um, and I, and I, and I try to be very uncool. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I do poems. I do yoga. It's my jam. And so I, I know a lot of teachers or I, or I've seen the experience of having a lot of teachers who try to bring like that. And I'm not saying I'm absolutely devoid of it by any means, but bringing like so much ego centered stuff in the classroom. When like, I think about like, I'm not teaching English, like I'm teaching kids I'm teaching like the students so how can I center their experience and who they want to basically like who they want to emerge in June having created for themselves so it's definitely one of those professions where you're very aware of trying to cultivate someone else's view of you Mm. that's something I think about a lot as as human beings how much we try to curate ourselves Mm -hmm. for other people but ultimately we have no no control over how we're perceived absolutely and isn't that a source of anxiety (laughs) (laughs) your first poem is on your website conservation of matter yeah that one really stuck out to me as someone who has a lot of addiction and alcoholism in my life and family and worlds it struck me. I thought it was really beautifully done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I have had experience with people in my life having addiction and thankfully have, I'm now in a place where I've really come out of that and having, I think, I don't want to say like shed those people in my life, but really come to a place where I'm processing how it had changed my worldview of some things and especially of myself and especially of my own identity and safety and autonomy and letting that be something that now I just write about as opposed to having to experience living with someone who has that disease Mm -hmm. that way the boundaries there can be so painful to get to but obviously the distance is yeah is it's like you can breathe once once you get some some space between absolutely and now even just thinking of the of that 
am I still the I in that poem? Or like, oh, it's just like, that's the fallacy of assuming, you know, the speaker and the and the poet are one in the same. And like in many cases, like they they almost like for me, that's very frequently the case. But then having had a couple years, you know, several years like since then, it allows me to see myself as the speaker, as a not present self, as a past self in which mm-hmm. the speaker and the poet are different, you know, persistence of identity and all that philosophy stuff. So that it feels good to have that perspective on some of my like older writing too. I feel that I wrote a a novel during the pandemic that I didn't look at again until like very recently. And I was reading it. It was like super close. Like, (laughs) I mean, there were elements of it that were not at all from my life, but if you read it and you knew me, you'd be like, Oh, oh, she's putting a lot of herself in there reading it now. Like I, I hated it after I wrote it, not because I didn't think it was good, but I just didn't, didn't want to like look back into that reflection. And now I can read it. I'm like, oh, this is really good, but only because I am not there yeah. anymore. Do you take time between your poems? Um, I think that that naturally happens when I'm submitting and getting stuff rejected a lot. So, so through that process, if I have something that I've written, that's kind of like fresh and a little bit raw. And if I send it out and it's not picked up and then sometimes that's like up to like six months or sometimes like nine months later, it depends. And then I'm looking at it from more of an editing standpoint or from a revision standpoint, rather than this is me like bleeding on the page kind of thing. That's one favor that the publishing and like lit mag world does us is gives us some space in between writing and who we were when we wrote it. Do you like, not do you like rejection? <laughs> How do you feel about that process of, of rejection and yeah. bleeding on a page and then to have that rejected? I mean, I think a couple of things have helped me. One thing is... I, a couple years ago, I had set a goal for a number of rejections rather than acceptances as a new year's resolution. And I was like, this will be a good practice. Cause when I get a rejection, I'll be like, Oh, I can add that to, I'm like one step closer. And then it's still like really sucked. I was like, this is like, this doesn't feel, this doesn't feel good. But I think like the amount of volume that I try to submit and since work out with, like I'm, I'm starting to develop that I don't want to say it's a callus, but I think I'd like to think I'm more so like developing my resiliency. Um, to it. So now if I have something that's rejected from a place that I really, really hoped it would get into, like, do I cry? Yeah. Yeah. I still cry sometimes. That's okay. But more so it's something that I'm like, okay, like it wasn't, I'm really taking to heart a lot of the rejection letters and even like, um, and also understanding that a lot of times lit mags are curating a certain vision for an issue. And I can kind of put that kind of balm on my wound and say like, oh, it wasn't quite the right fit for what they were looking for. And then move on from there. So I think like I, I always, you know, tongue in cheek, I always invite an opportunity to stay humble too. <laughs> um, I think that, I think that that's really good. And I think that that's healthy. And then also to just like, I don't know if I don't shoot my shot. So in my, in my writing group, sometimes I, I call my submission, my submission technique, like throwing spaghetti at the wall, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like something will stick. Cause, cause granted, even, you know, reading previous lit mags issues or like knowing um, or knowing something about the editorial staff that doesn't necessarily mean that I know what they're looking exactly for when they're putting an issue together. And that, that curation is masterful in and of itself. So I think I can take some 
joy in my ignorance in that process and say like, oh, it just wasn't the right fit. It doesn't mean it's bad, but I probably should take another revision look at it anyway. Mm-hmm. I tend to take it if it's a if it's a form rejection, then I feel pretty bad. <laughs> if it's personalized, I'm like, all right, they yeah. read it. Absolutely. <laughs> so do you mostly write, do you write fiction? I consider or... myself more of a fiction writer, but I probably submit more poetry just because, mm-hmm. you know, just I, I've mostly written long fiction. And that's one of those things where it's like, publishing a book or not publishing a book but poems you can kind of submit more places and have more of them (laughs) in a shorter time like my friends who write short stories like they're like oh I was finishing this one story to send to this one place and I was like I have my packet of five poems I'm ready to go like send those at send this other one there send this other one there so I feel like I'm entering into it with a little bit less risk given like the volume sometimes that a poet can just like throw at the wall I guess. (laughs) So anyone that you want to recommend? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So Mandy too was one of my chapbook siblings and chapbook because with, with 30 West, they released all of us like in the same cohort. And Mandy is just, um, she has a series of workshops she's been doing called the Yuzana workshops, which are raising funds for Mutual Aid Myanmar. And she's just an incredible human poet. I can send you her Twitter and all of that stuff. Shannon Frost Greenstein is also an incredible like local poet who I know personally, and will go to like a reading, like even if it's like an hour away and just spend the car ride, like talking about poems, life and everything stuff. She actually is also a philosophy person. Oh, another, another person. Um, I just want to shout out is Christina Rosso Schneider, who she and her husband own a novel idea, which is uh, an indie bookstore in Philly on Pasyank. And her writing is always incredibly feminist is in many cases, like non-binary takes mythology and kind of removes it from its patriarchal grip and is doing a lot of really, really amazing, not just writing, but also community organizing for writers and for bringing poetry to people as well. So those are the three that come to mind, I think also just because I've been like doing stuff with them recently, but there are so many just incredibly talented poets in the, um, writers in the world. Oh, also Addie Sai, T-S-A-I, their book Unwieldy Creatures came out. It's a queer biracial gender swap of Frankenstein. It's a retelling that I is on my stack of books to read, um, even though I hate reading, which is my real confession. <laughs> um, I can do like a poem or so, like, but I am a bad reader. Yeah, just some really, really great and talented writers. And then in terms of reading... I have some stuff coming out in the next couple months, but maybe I'll read. Is there a poem from the website you'd like me to read? Because I haven't updated the, like the poem content on here. Like there are some links to recent publications. How about Cosmology 33? Yes. Oh, I read that one at, uh, at readings a lot. And that's, that's in my chap also. Oh, cool. Let me find this. All right. So this is Cosmology 33. One. Weaving prophecy. You pull me back into myself, phantom mending golden filament, vision revised through Delphic swirls of melted ice in rye within the curled rims of paper coffee cups. Two, summer arbor, 
transformed new and foreign my every petal shivers even leaves mistake you in moonlight for sun three open as a letter tulip porch door the row between chorus girls the space between trees and stars four quotidian knowing where your sneakers wear out, your Sunday afternoon self, milk to cereal ratio. This is how I will treat the symptoms measured in slotted spoons. Five, once, when this almost happened, like the Pied Noir awaiting his execution, I felt ready to live it all again. Six, tragic marginalia. When will you slip to the periphery, surrender to an end note? How will I survive the scatter of cells, syllables? How will I survive this dispersion, the soul's diaspora? Seven, new ontology. I believe in concrete geometry over destructive mythologies, the intersection of two lines, not on a flat graph, but rather a sphere, faded to meet each year, two points of contact, numerically distinct, equidistant, and infinite collision. The earth is good for this. Wow, that was gorgeous. Oh, thanks. Have you ever considered doing voiceover work? I haven't. I'm lucky to have had many, many years of reading aloud to my students. Um, when I taught in Philly, we didn't have enough copies of To Kill a Mockingbird. So I read the whole book to the kids uh, for each period that I taught it, which was <laughs> really good practice. But it's it's something I like I enjoy. Like I enjoy reading. I enjoy the the craft, I guess, of it. I don't really do much to to work on my craft of it. But yeah, it's something I'm always open to. Well, that's cool. Yeah. You reminded me of, of like an audiobook narrator. Like it's very yeah, good. So. <laughs> I love that line, the soul's diaspora. That's just the mention of mythology reminded me that I didn't ask you the question that <laughs> the eternal question of the podcast, which is how, how Saturn is relevant to your life in this sense of Saturn, like as boundaries and structure and rules. And- so when I hear Saturn, I think of the return of Saturn. And then my first thought is no doubt is there, like, <laughs> there which second, third album, like something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the Saturn return is, I'm not sure what age that's at the Saturn return, but if Saturn is the planet that rules boundaries and I'm sorry, well, one more time. Structure boundaries, like kind of time. It comes from Kronos and mythology, which is time that, well, he's one of the Titans or whatever. Yeah. So I think that I feel like being, being mortal and being ruled by the march of time, I kind of measure uh, like in like in the poem Cosmology 33, measuring in slotted spoons, uh, but also I think of the people who I choose to spend my time with. I know that I have a limited number of heartbeats. I know that 
that there like there's a finite number of that. I know that there's going to be, you know, an expiration date. So I think like, are these, is this how I want to spend these heartbeats? And I think in that sense, I have tried to create boundaries around that, like not spending time with people or in situations or places that not that I'm like, oh, I want to ma- maximize my time in a capitalist sense, but I want to spend my time in contentment and joy as much as I can and in creating community, which is the thing that will outlast me and connections with people like those little ripple effects are the ones that that persist. My original, I can't believe I'm coming back to this, my original like new way of being in yoga teacher training was the sense of like an infinite heart that just like the these beats like reverberate and you're affected by and are affecting people in ways that will last even after after you're gone I think of like my grandmothers who have been incredibly influential and that love has continued even though like they're gone and they've been gone for many many years now so I think creating with the idea of of time and maybe it's also because I'm teaching Walt Whitman to my juniors that that there's always something that persists even when it feels like it doesn't yeah I think that's what I mean lovely thank you thank you so much for being on the podcast so it's lovely to have you we're gonna put links with everything how people can access you but is there anything else that you want to promote so my chapbook, Sweet Euphemism, is coming out in March 2023 with Mouthfeel Press under their Clash imprint, which is super exciting. The bunch of other really incredible writers, and it'll be available digitally, digitally, and then it will be available in print as well. So just really excited for this work, really honored to have my chat published by them because they're a really, really great organization. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.